Hey assholes, my name is Kelly and you're listening to episode one of Semper Spitz. Before I continue with this episode, I just want to clarify that I am not a mental health professional. I am not currently affiliated with any branch of the military, I am not affiliated with the Veteran Affairs, and I am no longer active duty. I don't even have a job, y'all, so there's nothing professional about where this podcast comes from. I'm simply a disabled veteran with my own experience and history of dealing with both the VA and my own mental health. These are my stories and my experiences. My hope is to bring resources to veterans, to bring change to how mental health is viewed, and to help stop self-inflicted death or harm in the veterans community. If my stories, resources, guests, or even my voice can help, my goal will be obtained, regardless of how successful this may or may not become. So I've really struggled with how to start this out. Do I tell you guys my life story? Do we just briefly hit some points? I mean, honestly, I would say my story is pretty common for a veteran. I didn't have the easiest childhood, but honestly, I wasn't the worst off kid. My parents were divorced. I lived with my mom just outside of Boston until I was 11, and then I moved to New Hampshire with my dad and my stepmom. I didn't really play sports growing up, and I wasn't one of those kids that had hobbies. I didn't fit into most molds. My small-ass town didn't even have a high school, so we had to go to the nearby city to go to our to go to high school, literally. But this did open up like a world of fucking opportunities for me because there were so many clubs and resources and like extra things at this high school that like would not have been available to me if my small-ass town did have a high school. So like honestly, worth it. Um, but when I got to high school, I was interested in ROTC, and I did that until senior year. So the summer before senior year, I didn't tell, but maybe one or two friends. Obviously, my parents knew. But nobody really knew that I, like, enlisted in the Marine Corps. So the summer between juniors, I definitely didn't have the grades for college. And I just really needed that clear path going into senior year. There was no stress, no SATs, nothing to hold me back. Literally, all I needed was a fucking diploma. So I was ready, and no one was going to stop me. And although a lot of people told me I'd never make it, I was fucking determined. By the end of senior year, I was barely graduating. School didn't really matter to me anymore. And all I really needed to go into the Marine Corps was that fucking diploma. So I walked across the stage, middle finger to the world, and I was ready to do whatever it took to become a United States Marine. Let me tell y'all, your girl earned that fucking title. July 9th, 2007, I reported to November Company, 4th Battalion, on Paris Island, South Carolina. At the time, female Marines were still segregated from males, and we trained completely separate. We barely saw men outside of instructors. 4th Battalion had three companies at the time, November, Oscar, and Papa. So I get to the fucking island, I hit the footprints, and I call my dad like every other Marine, right? I'm standing at the fucking, everybody has seen this video somewhere online, whether it's like Jarhead, YouTube, TikTok, whatever. You're standing in a room, there's like a bunch of telephones on the wall, and then you're in a line, and you call, and you literally say, hello, sir, ma'am, this is recruit so-and-so reporting from Paris Island, blah, 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 blah. My dad 
who is a United States Marine, was sobbing like a fucking baby. As I'm getting screamed at, I'm screaming into the phone. Like, the trauma begins in boot camp, like, day fucking one. Like, welcome to Paris Island, call your family, and be an asshole. Here we go. So anyways, my dumbass was so concerned with the initial strength test run portion that I really didn't think about anything else. So when I got to the island, my flex arm hang failed because, well, I didn't really train to become a United States Marine, let's be honest. I kind of just fucked off senior year and figured I'd figure it out. And unfortunately, that meant I was sent over to female readiness platoon at Paris Island. So female readiness platoon, or FRP, is basically like a medical platoon. It's for injured recruits or those that need extra time like me to prepare for boot camp. After two weeks, I was dropped back into a training platoon with Oscar Company, and I was on my way. No big deal. I'm about to ruin your perception of Marines, and I'm sorry, but um, boot camp was kind of a fucking joke, and I mean that in, like, the... I don't even know how to say it, honestly, but it was a fucking head game. Like, your drone instructor says jump, you say how high, and then you perform the fucking requested task. You do that, you put out, 13 weeks, you're back home sporting a new pair of blues showing off in your hometown. Literally. Shut the fuck up push your home 13 fucking weeks well it wasn't that easy for me because your girl has a fucking mouth and that led to some really fun family moments in my platoon and Oscar company so here I am halfway through hell and I get booted back again because I can't shoot a fucking rifle so the two fucking thing that the two fucking things that Marines are good for, right? Physical fitness and shooting a gun. And I fucking fail it. Both. Uh, what the fuck? So I get dropped to pop a company. So now this is my third company and I was an FRP. Literally, there were no other options for female Marines. I did it all. I guess that's why I'm gay now. So I finished my time at Paris Island exactly four months instead of the standard three, and I graduated on November 9th, 2007, one day before the Marine Corps birthday of 1775, ma'am. I'd honestly love to get into boot camp more because holy fuck, the memories, the stories, the drill instructors, and the laughs literally provide content for days. It's insane how you can block out so much but still have so many little memories at the same time. I used to stand online and drink water and would make a bubbler noise. Then it sounded like I was smoking weed and everyone would laugh. It was pretty fun. I have friends that I want to come on and talk with me because we were in boot camp together. And I think female Marines that went through that experience together are honestly bonded for life. Plus, we've seen each other naked. Even now, 16 years later, I'm still in contact with a bunch of these girls and watching each other's lives evolve on social media and their kids grow up and, like, their relationships grow, like, has turned us into, like, 
the most amazing lifelong friends. I'm part of a lot of female marine groups throughout social media, and even the ones that I haven't served with, we have that same bond. Being a female marine is just an instant rivalry. It's an instant connection, and we just talk shit constantly. So after boot camp, you go home for 10 days and you drink like you did something, like you went on deployment or something, and then you come home, act a fool, and just show out, to be honest. You're home for 10 days. I went back to my high school. I showed off because there were so many teachers that told me I would never amount to anything. So I had to show them that I did it, right? Like, thank you, Manchester High School West, for pushing me to get the fuck out. So after boot leave, you go to MCT, which is Marine Corps Combat Training, um, or SOI, which is School of Infantry, depending on your MOS. I was not an infantry MOS, so I went to combat training at Geiger. Um, after MOS school, you, or I'm sorry, after MCT, you go to MOS school, and that's where you actually learn, like, your fucking job in the military, right? So my school is in Meridian, Mississippi, at a naval air station um, that taught numerous aviation MOSs to the Navy and the Marine Corps, so it was a joint command. Um, basically, I just did record-keeping for aircraft logbooks and, like, maintenance for aircraft components, so anytime that something's put on or taken off a jet, it's documented. Anytime that there's maintenance done to a piece of gear or an aircraft or anything like that, it's documented, and it's really fucking boring. It's pretty fucking gay, and it's not the good kind. So I signed up for legal admin, and I was shafted like everyone else, and that is how I found myself in the Marine Corps Air Wing. After MOS school, I was given orders to Marine Corps Air Station Cherry Point in the small-ass town of Havelock, North Carolina. My orders had me report to Cherry Point, which is home to the Marine Corps' East Coast Fighter Jets, or Fixed Wing Squadrons. Um, it consists of Marine Aircraft Group 14, Marine Aviation Logistics Squadron 14, which is where I was assigned. And basically that squadron was tasked with supporting the flying squadrons on the line. While I was there, um, there were a few Harrier squadrons, a C-130 squadron, and four EA-6B Prowler squadrons in 2008. Um, currently, I think... Well, I know for a fact the Prowlers are gone from Cherry Point, and there's an inactive F-35 squadron that the Marine Corps can't get their shit together for. So now I'm a fucking big girl, right? Like, I'm a big girl. I'm not even 19 years old, and I'm a fully functioning United States Marine. I mean, these motherfuckers issued me the good Crayola shit, and I had two medals pinned to my chest like I don't go to an office job and kept records for aircraft all day. Insert nerd meme here. The fleet, especially in the air wing, was honestly like a 9 to 5, but it's more of like a 7 to 5 with PT before. You're probably going to stay late, and you didn't really have a life. You went to work, you went to the barracks, you got fucked up on the weekends, and we tested Liberty Boundaries with road trips. The fucking road trips. Since MCT and MOS school were co-ed, we started like kind of integrating early on, and so by the time we got to MOS school... We knew some people, and then by the time we got to Cherry Point, we probably knew most of the, you know, junior new kids that were on the block. So we were living in the barracks at the time, and, like, I don't know who else lives like this other than dumbass kids who signed their lives away at 18, 
but we were living in barracks that had headmates. So basically two rooms shared a bathroom with a shower and a toilet, and then each room had two beds, a sink, two wardrobe closets, and a lot of fucking mold. I honestly, I don't know how we managed to sleep with full grown men in these twin size beds or why any woman who wasn't ordered to live there would want to come back and fuck some dude, but here we were living life and being reckless as fuck. About nine months or so after getting to Cherry Point, my first deployment came up. I was issued orders at the end of February for Afghanistan in May of 2009. I was fucking stoked. This is what the Marines trained for. Since we had about three months between February and May, we were like, all right, there's time. We have stuff we can get done. And we all started going down to, like, Lejeune to, like, knock down pre-deployment ranges and, like, the different trainings that we had to do down there. At the time, our range at Cherry Point was closed down. So I'm halfway through the range, and I get a call that our deployment was moved up. It was the beginning of March now, and we were leaving in two fucking weeks. I was told, finish your range, get back to base, pack up for deployment. In a whirlwind of two weeks later, I was boarding a C-17 to Afghanistan with only a sergeant and a few other Lance Corporals. Looking back now, what the fuck? Like, this sergeant was just as much of a kid as we were. We were just sent to Afghanistan. We carried cargo with us, and the pilots did know the flight plan, so we were okay, but it was just a very confusing process. Oh, we were lucky and stopped in Spangdalem, Germany, which is an airbase controlled by NATO, and currently the United States Air Force is its tenant. The drinking age in Germany on the U.S. base was 18, so we fucking hung out. We were so lucky that we got to stop there, and then our Air Force pilots were like, hey, we don't really feel like flying today, so we're just going to chill another day. Do y'all mind? Absolutely not. Have fun. We don't want to go to Afghanistan I was really lucky to be traveling with another female Marine, and her and I had been through MOS school together. We were headmates at the barracks. Like, we were good friends. So we just hung out for a few days, watched movies, drank some beers, and, like, honestly just chilled the fuck out before we went into this, like, unknown area of, like, what we were supposed to do, right? Because nobody was telling us where we were going, what we were doing, any of that stuff at this point, because we were kind of just, like, on standby to standby to, like, get this cargo into Afghanistan. Eventually, we ran out of excuses or delays, and the Air Force pilots were forced to bring us to Kandahar. The flight from Samangdalam to Afghanistan was very different than the flight from Cherry Point to Samangdalam. I don't know how to explain it. It was something in the air. It was kind of the way the pilots were. I don't really know. It just it felt off. There was some bad vibes going on, but... Eventually, we got to Kanahar and we met up with some of the Marines we were deployed with. So this was a very unique deployment. It's March 2009, and we were rushed into Kanahar to meet up with our squadron and catch a flight to Camp Leatherneck, Afghanistan. Camp Leatherneck was in addition to a NATO base known as Camp Bastion, and it was in southern Helmand, Afghanistan, an area of Afghanistan that was highly populated and controlled by the Taliban. When we got to Afghanistan, everyone seemed kind of confused as to why we were there. Like, we didn't have a spot to set up our squadron yet, nor did we have the equipment, tools, or anything to do so. This is when hurry up and wait gets to be too much, because we waited for two fucking months. For two months, we walked around this base, 
slept in 20-person tents with literally 30 people sleeping on cot bunk beds. Like, no shit. Two cots fucking stacked. Like, we ended up having to wrap them with tie-downs so that they wouldn't fall apart in the middle of the night because, yes, that happened frequently. I literally cannot tell you how many girls I would hear fall in the middle of the night. (laughs) So, luckily, because female Marines are a rare sighting, we shoved 26 deep with any female they could shove in there from E1 to E7. Honestly, talk about a fucking toxic work environment. I can't tell you how many bootleg episodes of random shows we watched. A few people would work out, some would sleep. It was terrible, and we all became addicted to rippets and gambling. I'm telling you, I never walked around with hundreds of cash before except in Afghanistan. This helped because the cash was my spending money. So nicotine, monsters, whatever, because the exchange only took cash, we literally couldn't do anything else. My paychecks were stacking, and I was literally doing nothing. Two months of military pay is four paychecks. So we had four paychecks deep in Afghanistan before we even started working. May 22nd, 2009, which happened to be my 20th birthday, we finally went to work. And girl, by work, I fucking mean it. Because we built our squadron's compound in Afghanistan to fit our squadron's needs because we were the first ones there. Um, we took gear from Iraq while they were breaking it down. They were sending it over to us. We got, that's why we had to wait like the two months to like get everything in and like get everything situated so that we could actually move forward. But like the fact that they sent us there two months early just I think really rubbed a lot of us the wrong way. But the squadron came together and we started building so that we could support the flight line. So this squadron was responsible for parts and repairs for the flight line. And the cool thing about it is we came together to form, like, a new one in Afghanistan. So the Marine Corps took Marines from Mouse 14 at Cherry Point, Mouse 26 and 29 at um, Air Station New River, and Mouse 31 from, from Beaufort, South Carolina. And they formed this deployed squadron called Mouse 40. We lovingly called ourselves the Bastion Bastards. And as much as it sucked being stuck with nothing to do at all, it really ended up allowing us to bond on that deployment. We built the compound together. We spread rock mount, like, down everywhere, busted our asses and ankles walking around every day. But it was our home. I can't explain it. It just, it felt safe on that little compound. We had little nooks and hideouts and little forts built throughout, like, for shade. People started building porches. I honestly, to this day, have no idea where we got all this fucking wood from. Um, even grills were appearing, and that was just, like, our little home away from home. So there was a gym, like, people were always outside, someone was always in the smoke pit smoking a cigar, there was waters everywhere, and of course, we had some lined-up Porter Johns. There was a flight line chow hall right across the street, and we ended up getting, like, real close to those guys, and, like, on surf and turf, they would just give us our own, like, uncooked steaks, so we could cook them on our grill like way better than they were doing but anyways in July of 2009 I stood on the flight line and watched over 60 helicopters load up hundreds of marines for the push into southern Helmand. this was a big Taliban area at the time I can't even describe that feeling I've tried to numerous times 
and but just standing there in the pitch black and just watching one by one these marine infantrymen that weren't even old enough to fucking drink load into helicopters and take off like it was beyond anything i had ever experienced you were standing there watching this happen and you knew you just knew that some of those marines weren't going home and honestly a lot of them didn't and if they did go home they didn't go back whole Prior to this experience, we had a few casualties come through our base. When this happens, they call in all hands to the flight line. They drape a flag over a metal tin coffin and we send them home, one by one. At this moment, their families may not even know that they've been killed. I really can't remember if they ever told us the names of the kids we were sending home, but I do remember obsessively checking casualty sites to see if I could try and match the ramp ceremony to the name. It really became difficult to keep track of after a while, especially after this push into Southern Hellman. When someone is killed overseas, regardless of branch, the entire U.S. military communication, communication system comes to a halt. You can't call back home unless it's a government-to-government -government secret line. You can't email with anyone without a .mail email address. And even for those of us out of harm's way, on bases, we're put into lockdown so that the next of kin was notified of death. This is one thing I think is the most respectful thing we've done for Gold Star families, and I know a lot of Gold Star families received calls from Afghanistan after the fact. But can you imagine, with today's social media, the spouse groups on Facebooks, fucking TikTok? Like, you guys thought that Ukraine was bad. Like, think fucking whoever that Marines didn't have TikToks in Afghanistan in 2009, because holy fuck. So the months passed, and we were looking at transition time as most units deploy for about six months. We were told that we may do eight because of the two months we did nothing, but we were extended again and told that we were going to be doing an entire year. Our transition date was pushed to March of 2010. At 20 years old, an entire year felt like a lifetime. Every day for an entire year. We were given two weeks of leave because of our extended deployment, and we were able to fly to one destination anywhere in the world. The military flew us there and back to Afghanistan. A few people did take advantage of this and explored Europe or foreign countries, but I just went back home, back to Boston, for Labor Day in New England. It was honestly the best trip I could have given myself. My older brother and I sat three rows from the Red Sox dugout for a home game at Fenway. My dad and stepmom got a house on the beach for Labor Day in the Cape. I got to see friends. It was almost too perfect. I really didn't know how I was going to go back after two weeks. But I did. And in my head, at 20 years old, I thought, well, if I don't come home, at least I had this trip. At least I get my friends and my family these memories. Because life keeps going on without us while we're out there. And we miss so many milestones. That was a hard deployment for me, mentally and emotionally. I mean, I was fucking 19 when I left and almost 21 when I came home. I wrote my first will, dealing with so many days of dull, mind-numbing boredom and days of straight emotions as we loaded casket after casket or worked 12-hour shift after 12-hour shift to make sure the flight line remained flying. Anyone could have lost it during this time. A few of us did. 
a lot of us lost people that year that we knew from home or boot camp or wherever. Our brains weren't even fully developed. Your frontal lobe is not fully developed until you're 25. So why do we allow people to join the military at 18? Then we were sent home with literally nothing. Because guess what? Marine Corps Airwing didn't do shit in Afghanistan. At least that's what they thought. It was weird and different to be home. It was March of 2010. Back to the bullshit. Back to the physical requirements of the Marine Corps. And back to the 9 to 5 boredom grind. It was aggravating to be home. This was probably where my survivor's guilt stems from because I was just so annoyed with everyone. Just living their lives as men and women are over there. Like I missed it, but I hated it. I wanted to go back, but I never wanted to go there again. In August of 2010, I married my first husband. Yeah, first husband. We'll discuss that later. I was 21. We were high school sweethearts. He was my best friend, and I thought I knew what love was. I honestly had no idea. Also, I'm gay as fuck, so it makes sense that that didn't work out. But truthfully, we were just too young. We amicably went our separate ways after meeting up the courthouse during my Christmas visit. We high-fived, walking out. He gave me a huge bear hug and said, stay safe, kid, because I was heading back to Afghanistan in two months. Out of, his, out of respect for his family, I'm going to admit some details here, but this man was my best friend for so long. And although we grew apart and our lives went separate, separate ways, we did stay in touch until his death of 2014. In February 2011, I found myself back on a plane to Afghanistan, back to being a bastion bastard and back to Camp Leathernick. This time, there was no tense. And thank the fucking chesty gods, because we had cans that were amazing had actual beds, and real air conditioning. Also, Amazon was more of a thing now in Afghanistan, and we got some dope shit from locals and third country nationals that sold us some bootlegs at the bazaar. We were living it up. The U.S. bases in Afghanistan were built up more. The war had been ongoing. We captured and killed Osama that summer. I paid off another car. I attended way too many ramp ceremonies, and I came home in 2011 pretty hopeful for my next enlistment. That deployment was nothing. Six months after the year I just did, it was great. As soon as I got back, I found out I was moving squadrons again. And I headed over to a prowler squadron at Cherry Point, VMAQ2. I was a corporal at this point, chasing sergeant and doing anything to stay on top of my dreams of becoming a drill instructor in my second enlistment. I had already re-enlisted and I had four years remaining. The EA-6B community at Cherry Point was very small and very close. There were four Prowler squadrons at the time, VMAQ-1, 2, 3, and 4. Each squadron had a handful of jets, and in Iraq, they rotated two at a time, six months in, six months out, until they slowed down in Iraq and started sending one squadron to Afghanistan. Well. It was Q2's turn, and we were deploying in six months back to Afghanistan. This was the first deployment that I just didn't want to go on. I was so excited to go to the Prowlers because I was already so involved in their community, and I had so many friends that were there. It's a Marine Corps thing. I really can't explain it, but Cherry Point was very close, and that Prowler squadron community was so fucking close. 
but I really just didn't want to jump back to Afghanistan so quickly. I moved squadrons and was selected for sergeant a month later. I really enjoyed working there and was getting excited to actually deploy with them. And then I found roller derby. And let me tell you guys, this side quest in my life was the best damn thing that happened to me. My friend and now derby wife had been looking for a roller derby league for her daughter who was obsessed with Whip It, but couldn't find a juniors league because they didn't really exist, especially in that area at the time. She did, however, find an adult rec league and we decided to just check out a practice one day and it was just everything that I thought I was missing in my life. It just instantly clicked for me and it just made so much sense in my head for me to play roller derby. So a lot of people will say, oh, roller derby saved my soul or roller derby saved me. And in my situation, it really did save me. Um, I'm going to add a trigger warning onto this next part. Um, it does consist of uh, my personal military sexual trauma story. Um, so there is a trigger warning. If you don't want to hear, just kind of move forward. I'm not going to go into a lot of detail, as I'm sure... There will be a time and place for that, but I was um, sexually assaulted in November of 2011. So shortly after being selected for sergeant, finding roller derby, getting excited about my new squadron, getting excited about deploying again, I was a victim of military sexual trauma, also known as MST. I was very fortunate that the incident did not escalate to rape, and I was clear-headed enough to remove myself as, as soon as I could from the situation. But sexual assault did occur, and I was ripped awake from the comfort of sleeping in my own bed to a man attempting to perform oral sex and fingering me. I came to as his wife walked in my room. I got dressed, and I left. There's more to this story, and I'm sure I will absolutely come back to this at some point. But for right now, that is how I inevitably... inevitably became a part of a statistic. In my opinion, it's literally not a matter of if you'll be sexually harassed or assaulted while in the military as a female, it's when. And for me, it took two deployments in four years to be sexually assaulted by a man that I looked at as a brother, a man I lived with and worked with. We were both selected as sergeant that month and should have been promoted prior to this incident. But our squadron had just refer returned from a training in Arizona and asked to push it to Monday. This incident happened Friday night into Saturday morning. When I reported the incident immediately to my chain of command in the local sheriff's department, I was already not taken seriously. It was 3 a.m. The police officer that interviewed me noted that I had been drinking that night. Even though I hadn't consumed alcohol in over five hours, I had gone to bed around 10 p.m. because I had been on 24-hour duty the night prior and I hadn't slept. He also noted that I threw up during our interview. Yes, motherfucker. That's called anxiety. I was just traumatized by a man I'm supposed to trust beside me in Afghanistan in four months. 
someone I had lived with. I was renting a room from him and his wife. I had known them and their kids since I had gotten to Cherry Point. He married his wife around the same time I got there, and we were in the same office as Lance Corporal's. We were both put on pause for our promotion to sergeant. I was interviewed by everyone in my chain of command. I told my story over and over and over again. I was sent to NCIS. I told it again. I was moved upstairs to sit in the S1 admin's office while they figured out how to handle it. I spoke to every rep my squadron wasn't dropping the ball when it came to that. They would, however, drop the ball on so many things. At the end of the day, I was promoted to sergeant in a private ceremony alone. The best rank in the Marine Corps. The one I was looking forward to the most, and I didn't even get pictures of my promotion. I couldn't plan for friends and family to be there. The man that assaulted me was also promoted and sent to a different squadron. I went back to Afghanistan. He was medically retired for the Marine Corps due to a shoulder injury. A shoulder injury he received off-duty, likely while drinking, but I won't make my assumptions on that. After this incident and prior to my third deployment, I poured my heart and soul into roller derby. I was determined to kill it. I started skating five times a week, if not more, every day. Jelly Roll recently said in an interview that the only way to overcome addiction is to find something and obsess over it. I think we can relate this to mental health as well. Find your passion, pour your soul into it, see where it goes. That's all I did. I skated, and I skated, and I skated some more. I was obsessed. I couldn't stop. I was finally good at it, something. I was never athletic, even in the Marine Corps. I passed PFTs and shit, but I wasn't great. I wasn't good. But this, I was good, and I was cocky. <laughs> and one night in a bar, I thought I was hot shit, and um, I tried to fight a old lady from a motorcycle club. And, well, when I say old lady, I don't mean a granny. I mean she was somebody's old lady. She was property of. And <laughs> this motorcycle club also owned the bar we were in. So, yeah, your girl. Your girl was a little feisty. But a couple years later, I actually became pretty good friends with that motorcycle club. So shit comes full circle. It's all good. And I didn't get my ass kicked. I didn't do anything stupid. But my roller derby name was born in that bar, just like the Marine Corps. And, well, Semper Fight Her was adopted. So if you're oblivious to the Marine Corps, the motto is Semper Fidelis. Semper means always in Latin, and it translates to always faithful. So Semper Fight Her, always fight her. Being the 22-year-old rowdy kid that I was, still am sometimes, it just seemed fitting. And that's kind of where this came from. Semper spits, always spits, always talking shit, but channeling it to make it better. So anyways, I played in every scrimmage, every game that I could before that next deployment. But it inevitably came, and sooner rather than later, I was back in Afghanistan. This was February of 2012. This time I was in northern Afghanistan near the Pakistani border on an Air Force base called Bagram. This was mint living conditions. 
even though the Marines were on the edge of the base and we slept in these like wooden huts with like plywood that separated our rooms, like the food was good. The gym was never packed because the Air Force was always at a pizza party, right? Like it was nice. I don't know if you've ever deployed to Afghanistan and been to Bagram compared to uh, Leatherneck in 09, you were living it up. So the Prowlers were positioned on the flight line right behind the hospital, and Bagram's hospital was the biggest in Afghanistan. Most injured came through there prior to being sent to Germany, which then you get sent to Bethesda in Maryland. There was an area right next to us called the Dust Off. And basically, that's where medevacs came in and dropped off our injured. Once stabilized, they moved seriously injured U.S. military members to Bagram and then up to Germany. The hospital also took in injured people from around our base, U.S. military and Afghani locals. We would frequently help unload medevacs and rush, rush stretchers into the ER intake room. Sometimes it was quiet. Some days it was one after another. We never really knew what was going to happen until it did. We took IDF which is indirect fire so many times because the hospital was literally right behind us and that was always their own their aim. Luckily, some Taliban dummy could never get it right because we had a few duds that came too close for comfort, but nothing that set off. A lot of nights of sirens and sitting in bunkers waiting for all clears. And a lot of us had iPhones at this point that were like shut off but connected to Wi-Fi or in airplane mode so we could still play games offline. You know what I mean? So a lot of temple run games while waiting for the all clear message. It was quite a weird experience. I guess you had to be there. Quickly, I started volunteering, trying to find a reason to help, something to do. I honestly felt useless. I started donating platelets, and I would regularly be turned away for not waiting long enough to recycle my own platelets before trying to donate again. I would walk around with our chaplain, and he just had this calming presence. And although I'm not religious, walking around with him in the hospital just became like one of the highlights of my days. We would talk to nurses and doctors and amputees and coma patients and just hold their hands and he would pray. And like, I would just stand there quietly, respectfully. It became harder and harder to keep going back. Like you'd see someone one day and not the next and you really couldn't be told if they went to Germany or if they went home. Like during this deployment, I saw a lot of guys that I just didn't know what happened. One day you'd go in and the ICU would be packed with people. The next day it just would be empty. And you really, like, weren't told. I mean, you weren't told anything because it's not your business. And it was, But it was just hard. During this deployment, I also got the news that my really good friend was killed in a motorcycle accident back home near base. It was a hard reality since a lot of my senior enlisted friends were actually friends with him too. And I was the one that found out first. So I had to go tell everyone what happened. He was in our community and it was really hard to handle. Also during this deployment, my older brother and best friend joined the Marine Corps and my heart was shattered. I missed everything. I didn't get to see him walk across the parade deck. I didn't get to fuck with him as a sergeant on family day. I didn't get any of it. And at this point, I was honestly over the Marine Corps' rain gear games. I just wanted to go home. In August of 2012, we packed up our area, 
tore down Prowler Town in Afghanistan and moved to Qatar, or Qatar, however you say it, to finish out our deployment. The Prowlers were being pulled from Afghanistan. We spent about a month in Qatar before returning to Cherry Point on September 9th, 2012. After that deployment, I was gone. My heart wasn't in it anymore, my soul had been beaten, and I was done. Survivor's guilt was really hitting me at this point. So many days in Afghanistan, always coming home. Watching the hospital become a revolving door for patients you'll never know about. I knew I was different. I knew by this third deployment I was broken. I could feel it. I just didn't know what it was, where it was coming from, what it meant. I'm a Marine. I'm stronger than this. I can handle it. This was my third deployment. But let's recap real quick. From March of 2009 until September of 2012, three and a half years, that's almost an entire enlistment, and I was deployed for 65% of that time. From Lance Corporal to Sergeant, from 19 years old to 23, I literally built Afghanistan up in 2009 at Leatherneck and then tore it down in 2012 in Bagram. And if that isn't the most beautifully twisted green weenie of a career, I really don't know what is. Of course I'm fucked up. The Marine Corps will tear you down and then help you build yourself back up. But if you're no longer serving the Marine Corps, they'll no longer build you up. Your little piece in the machine will quickly be replaced and the Marine Corps robot will continue to plow through someone else's life. I promise you that. That is the most important lesson you can teach yourself in any situation. How important, do I to, how important am I to this country, to this company, to the squadron, to the U.S. military? Because returning from Afghanistan in September 2012, it was clear I was no longer able to give the Marine Corps what I could. I was broke, and it was just the beginning of a whirlwind of emotions and decisions that ultimately led to me being discharged in June of 2014. And that's where I'm going to leave you guys. Please stay tuned for part two. And thank you guys so much for listening to my first episode. You guys, that was my first episode. Seriously, please, please, please like, subscribe, whatever else those hardcore influencers have to say. I have links on links on links in a link tree that I will add in the episode notes. If you want to write to me, please send an email to semper.spitz at gmail.com. That's S-E-M-P-E-R dot S-P-I-T-S at gmail.com. My link tree is L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E slash semper dot spitz pod. That's link tree slash semper dot spitz pod. Instagram, TikTok, and Patreon are semper.spits. All are at semper.spits. If you want to support me in this adventure, please consider signing up to be signing up to be one of my Patreons. As you can tell, this microphone's a little janky, but the good one I want is $400 and super worth waiting for, so please help me get there. Additional funds will be allocated to get my setup better, help with editing, marketing, etc. So Patreon is basically to help me get started. I only have one tier right now, and it's called Shit Talkers, and for $10 a month, you can be a Semper Spitz Shit Talker, receive a free shirt that I'm designing and sending directly to you. 
YouTube is semper.spitzpod, and I will be uploading some video footage from recording sessions and others too soon, so please subscribe for now so you get all alerted when I do. All of these links are on Linktree. Thank you.